And you can turn it in Mark chapter 5. We're going to come to the portion of our service where we get to worship God through the proclamation of his word. And as I prematurely said earlier, we are going to be studying Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And the title of this sermon is The Way of Healing. We've been looking at, as we've examined the gospel of Mark, this gospel way that Jesus presents to us and then invites us into. And what we'll see in this um, portion of Mark is another one of those classic Markan sandwiches where there is an initial thing that happens, there's an interruption of the thing, and then there's a concluding portion, the second side of the sandwich um, that presents to us as a kind of a, a whole narrative unit. And so the title of this sermon is going to be The Way of Healing. And the thesis that I would put before you, it's in your bulletin there, is that true and eternal healing, true and eternal healing, not just temporary physical healing, but true and eternal healing is found through faith in Christ. And so I'm going to read the text in its entirety. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word from Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and be healed of your disease." While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. It's a miraculous story. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this story, take this account, and use it to form us more to the image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, that we would, as we read this, as we study this, as we listen to a sermon about this, we ask that you would cut our hearts open with conviction, but that you would put us back together with the healing balm of the gospel, that we would be convinced that if there are some who don't believe in you, that they would be converted, that we would be challenged, that we would be comforted by the truth of your gospel that we see here in this text. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you make all of this happen. Lord, without you, my words are empty and will be fruitless. So we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would grant the the unction this morning by the power of your Spirit to preach the truth in grace and in love so that these words might not fall on ears and go forth without returning something for them, but that they would come back doing the power and the thing that you would have them accomplish this morning, the building up of your church, the comfort of your people, and the conviction of sinners to believe in you and to look to you, Jesus, as the one who is the source of life and healing forever and ever. Lord Jesus, we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. The reason why snake oil got a bad rap was because of a guy named Clark Stanley. Clark Stanley, back in the late 1800s, was a cowboy, and he claimed that he had studied with a a Hopi medicine man in the southwest of America and had learned the secrets of healing using snake oil. And so he went to the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893 and tossed a bag on the stage in front of him. It was wriggling. He reached into the bag, and there was a rattlesnake in there. He took his knife, he cut the snake open, kind of squeezed the guts out a little bit and tossed it in a boiling pot of water. And the stuff that all kind of came to the surface, he scraped off, scooped off, and put it in little jars that had some herbs nicely put inside of them and said, here you go. This is the cure for what ails you. Give me your money. And so people then started giving their money. They started buying this stuff. And Charles uh, Stanley went around selling this. And now we know that snake oil is something that you buy, that you spend money on, that has a purported health benefit that actually does nothing. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think snake oil is anymore, although I have some opinions. But what I want you to know is that he's not entirely wrong. You see, snake oil got a bad rap because Charles Stanley lied about it. But what actually had happened is that people in the late 1800s had heard of a real remedy called snake oil. Chinese immigrants came over and were, were very much, many of them went out west and were building the railroads. And when they came over, when they immigrated over from China, they brought with them Chinese medicine. And part of that was actual oil from actual Chinese snakes a Chinese water snake, and the fat from that snake had an incredibly high omega-3 content. And if you take supplements like omega-3 fish oil, you know that one of the purported benefits of that is an anti-inflammatory property. And so the Chinese rail workers were rubbing the snake oil on their aching joints as an anti-inflammatory. And Charles Stanley took that and he modified it and he said, this is how I'm going to make money and people bought it up. To the point now, we don't trust anybody that sells snake oil. Now, why would people buy this? 
Why would people be duped by a guy cutting open a rattlesnake and squeezing out its guts into a pot of boiling water? Well, there are two reasons. One, like I said, there was a kernel of truth in his claims. They had heard that there was something called snake oil that could help their ailments, and so they bought it hook, line, and sinker. But the second part of it is because people are universally afflicted by sin. People are universally afflicted by disease and suffering that leads to death. And so because of that, people universally and constantly and consistently are looking for something to be the cure to what ails them. And so what we see here in the text is two people who on the surface look very different but share the same common element of suffering. And they both come to Christ as the one in whom they can find health in healing, and wholeness. And the first thing that I want to look at as this narrative begins to unfold is that that humility as they find healing. We read in verse 21 that when Jesus crossed back again to the other side, he went from healing the demoniac on the, the Gentile side of Lake Galilee, and now he's come back to the Jewish side. And immediately there's a great crowd about him as he was beside the sea. And out of that crowd, a man, a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name, comes up to him. Now, really quick, Jairus was not a priest. Jairus was not a Pharisee. Um, Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, a lay person that would have been in charge and have the responsibility of helping worship happen, gathering the scrolls together, overseeing the, the worship practices. So if, if we were talking about Presbyterian terms, um, Jairus would not have been a teaching elder. Jairus would have been kind of a combination of deacon and ruling elder. But he is a leader of the synagogue, and he comes to Jesus, and he falls at his feet. Narratively, this is very parallel to the demoniac. Jairus comes and falls at the feet of Jesus and implores him, Heal my daughter. Come lay your hands on my daughter. She's near the point of death. If you touch her, she will be made well. And so, unlike the demoniac who came and fell at Jesus' feet in subjugation to the Lord, Jairus comes to our Lord Jesus falls at his feet in humility and says, you, you are the one who can heal and restore my daughter. Every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, some in humility and some in subjugation. But here Jairus displays this incredible, humble faith and not only the ability, but the willingness of Jesus to come heal. He understands. He understands that Jesus is the source of life. He's, he's heard the reports. He knows who Jesus is. As Jesus has demonstrated over and over and over again that his intentional, loving, caring, physical touch restores life to broken people. Kids, I want to pause here. I want to ask you a question. What's the worst medicine you've ever had to take? What's the worst medicine? Simone, Cherry cough medicine, that's yucky. What about you, Caleb? Um, elderberry syrup almost made you lose your... Okay, that's, that's vivid. It's very good. What about you, Bela? Made you more sick. Yeah, what's up, Lucia? Chewy like grape tablets. 
There's a weird chalky thing. Yeah, yes, what about you? Oh, wait, it was too sweet? Oh, my gosh. You see, all of us, yes, Piper. Tamiflu? We give you Tamiflu? I'll be honest, I didn't know that we ever gave her Tamiflu. I don't, have, I don't think... Oh, okay, okay. So sometimes, so kids, what you've just demonstrated is the same thing for adults too. All of us, all of us get sick. All of us have things that get wrong with us. And so we have to take medicine, even when it's yucky, to make us better. We all get sick, and so we all need healing. And so Jairus goes to the place where she can, his daughter can really and truly find healing in Christ. And so when he asks, when Jairus asks Jesus to lay his hands on her so that she'll be saved or healed, that's the same Greek word for saved. And so when we talk about physical healing in the Gospel of Mark, when we talk about physical healing, Mark has this underlying connection to spiritual healing. When Jesus heals people, it's never just It's never just about taking Tamiflu or elderberry syrup or chalky grape tablets. It's never about the physical act. It is always going to point towards a more deeper, holistic, spiritual reality. He is the one that can heal. He is the one that saves us. And Jesus uh, responds to Jairus' request. He follows him through the crowd. And as he moves through this crowd that is now thronging about him, we meet our second character. We, we meet the, the middle of the Mark and Sandwich, this nameless woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all of her money on different doctors. And not only did none of that work and she was left without any money, she was worse off than when she started. So in her mind, she said, if I can just come up behind Jesus and touch his garment... That's all I need. That is sufficient to make me well. I can find healing in Christ just touching the fringe of his garment. You see, in many ways, she could have not been more different than Jairus. Um, Jairus was a man, a leader in the community, and presumably economically very stable as a leader of the synagogue. And here she is, a nameless woman. She doesn't even get named in the account who has spent all the money that she has ever had. So she is economically completely untenable at this point. She spent it for 12 years. She's gone about trying to find healing, and she has had nothing, but she has been bleeding constantly. It's not only would she have been economically untenable, she would have been socially and spiritually unviable as well. You see, for the Jewish people, any kind of bodily discharge even a natural one like menstruation, would have rendered someone ceremonially unclean. We learn about this in Leviticus 15, if you want to really go through all the details of, of how they lay that out. But what that means is that doesn't mean that a natural bodily discharge renders you sinful. It doesn't mean that you, you've sinned. But what it means is that you are ceremonially unclean and unfit to enter into the presence of God. You would not have been able to enter into the tabernacle You would not have been able to go amongst God's people to worship. You would have had to go outside the camp and wait until you had been clean. So for women, there was a monthly rhythm of that. But for this woman, for this woman, 12 years of constant ritual uncleanliness, 12 years of being excluded from the worship of God's people, 12 years of not being able to make well, 12 years of spending money and money and time and only getting worse. And so she is broken and destitute and on the fringes of society in a way that Jairus doesn't really know. 
doesn't really know. But she and Jairus agree that only Christ, only Jesus, only this one who has healed others can be the source of their healing. So in her humility, she doesn't go and fall at his feet like Jairus does. She says, if I just sneak up behind him, I don't need his acknowledgement. I don't need his words. I don't need him to follow me. I just need to touch the fringe of his garment. He won't even have to know that I'm there. But if I go to him, I will be healed. And so while they're different in many ways, they share that trait of humility, that dependence on Christ. And so Jairus, Jairus, as a leader of the synagogue, he does not let himself be too proud to say that I don't need Jesus. I can take care of this myself. He doesn't act like King Naaman in 2 Kings who says, you want me to get in that dirty river Jordan to get healed of my leprosy? No, Jairus, as a leader, humbles himself. He says, I can't do this. I have come to the end of myself. I don't have the ability. I don't have the power. I don't have the resources to heal my daughter. So I have to humble myself and go to the one who does. And this woman, this nameless, bleeding ceremonially unclean woman in many ways you would think that she doesn't need to be humbled she's surely already humble enough but she humbles herself to the point where she does not let her shame her uncleanliness she doesn't let that stop her from going to Jesus both Jairus and this woman have every socio-cultural reason to get away from Jesus but they both go to him humbly looking for the life in healing that they could not find on their own. And we see the response, the outcome of this. Jesus follows Jairus. And when the woman touches Jesus, he feels and knows a power go out of him and she is instantly healed. There's a couple applications that I want to flesh out of here for you guys. And one is this. The, the point here is not be, be super humble and be a good Christian. The point is that faith in Christ produces a humility in you that will then inevitably lead to some kind of action. You see, we confessed earlier from Shorter Catechism number 86 that faith in Christ is this saving grace whereby we receive. We receive Christ. We have to accept Christ. We have to go after Christ. We have to reach out and take this gift. And so even though Faith is a gift that Christ works in our hearts by work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Faith produces then an action where we will go to Christ and say, You are enough. I will repent, turn from my sin, and I will turn to you in faith. Faith means the action that faith is going to produce is the humility to admit your need, to admit your powerlessness to admit your inability, to confess your inability to follow Christ, to confess the ways that you've sinned against Christ the way we do every week as a church. And that faith is not just a, an exercise in, in repetition. It's not an exercise in intellectual curiosity. It is a believing and receiving what Christ has done for you. You see, all those people, they were thronging about Jesus. They were, he was being touched by all kinds of people, but only the woman who came to him with intention and faith was the one that received healing. See, faith is not an intellectual exercise. It is an act of depending and receiving the grace that God has for you in Christ. And so I would ask you, I would, I would offer this question, 
do you want, as a, as a member of the church, as a person who says you follow Jesus, do you want the benefits of following Christ, or do you want Christ himself? And if the benefits of following Christ are taken away, will you still claim him? And, and that's, that's a tough question, and it can be difficult to flesh out. But let me just put, put some skin on it for you, because uh, and, and, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 4. Because the person who experiences suffering, the person whose, whose seed springs up with joy, they receive the, the belief in Christ with joy. But if there are rocks in the ground and the roots don't go deep, when the sun comes up and scorches, they fall away. So if you are still saying yes to Christ, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult, even when it's not culturally appropriate, that is wonderful evidence that you have received Christ and believe in Him. And so the second application that I would, I won't flesh out as much, is that something we've already mentioned, is that sin and suffering are universally afflicting people. But more importantly, sin and suffering do not respect social status or socioeconomic standing, right? Jairus was presumably in a much higher tax bracket than this woman, and yet both of them experienced an absolute immense amount of psychological and physical suffering. And so we as people, we do a lot of stuff to insulate ourselves from death and dying and disease and discomfort. We do a lot of stuff to insulate ourselves. We make sure that we have enough money in the bank for our retirement account. We make sure if you're a Dave Ramsey person, you've got that $1,000 emergency fund saved up in cash somewhere. You know, we do a lot of stuff to make sure that we can take care of ourselves. And we who have socioeconomic means to do that, we, we do that. But that does not stop sin and suffering from afflicting all people, even God's people. And so it doesn't matter whether you have a ton of money, a ton of stock options, a ton of money in the bank, a ton of experience, a ton of training, a great job. At some point, you will surely, as sure as the sun rises, experience the result of sin and suffer in this life. And the only way you are going to be healed from that is by going to Christ, looking to Him, not yourself. And so as we examine this, as we look at this account we, we can acknowledge the, the goodness and the good example of Jairus and the good example of this woman displaying humility, displaying this faithful dependence on Christ. But it's not just humility that they display. There's also an incredible gritty persistence that we see unfolding in this narrative. You see, over the past 12 years, this woman had been bleeding. She had gone to all these doctors. She had spent all that she had. And when we read this, a lot of the times we read this and we focus on my gosh, she suffered for a long time. That's longer than my kids have been alive. But we don't ever, or at least I don't ever think about the fact that she tried for 12 years. She was grinding for 12 years. She was working for 12 years to look for something that was going to work, and it doesn't happen. But look, the picture that we have here in Mark 5 is she doesn't give up. She doesn't give up. She spent 12 years looking, and she finally comes to Christ and says, if I only touch the fringe of his garment. After bleeding for as long as the other little girl we learn at the end of the narrative, as long as she's been alive, this woman's been bleeding. And she goes to Christ after looking in the wrong place for a long, long time, and she finally finds healing. When she came to Christ, her search ended. She touched the fringe 
of his garment and in her body, she immediately knew that she was healed of her disease. I don't know if you've ever broken a bone. Um, When I was in seventh grade, I was very bad at wrestling, and so I broke my arm when I wrestled. And immediately when I broke it, it was a bad break. I could just feel this burning. It just, it just, it was burning. There was something not right. I couldn't move my arm because both bones were, were at a 90 degree angle. It was rough. And when I got to the hospital, the doctors grabbed my fingers and they just started doing this. And eventually my bones clicked into place. And instantly in my body, I knew there was relief. They weren't at a 90 degree angle anymore. And so there's something about relief that you know in your body. And this woman knew that when she touched the fringe of his garment in faith, she knew in her body that she was healed of her disease. But here's the thing. Jesus knew too. right? He perceived in him that power had gone out from him. Something was categorically different from the other people crowding around him. And so Jesus calls her out. Jesus calls her out. He looks around and asks, who did this? And the woman knew that he, she was going to be discovered. So she comes forward and she says the whole truth. And Jesus doesn't scold her for breaking the purity laws. Jesus doesn't scold her for an unclean woman touching a rabbi. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so what Jesus does is that he looks at her He acknowledges her humanity, and he doesn't treat this as a transactional occasion. This is not, I did something for you, you go do something for me. This is a personal, incredibly personal, incredibly powerful moment where Jesus is saying, not only are you being physically healed of your disease, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go in the wholeness of of life that is now reordered because of your Messiah. Jesus is the one who fixes, who reorders, who reorients our lives when we come to him, when we seek and find him. This physical healing was an outward sign of an inward reality. Remember, when Mark talks about physical healing, it's connected to that spiritual shalom. And so when she is physically healed after persistently looking in all the wrong places, Jesus says, not only are you healed, but go in peace, go in shalom, go in restoration. Your faith has made you well. But this beautiful, personal powerful moment is immediately interrupted with bad news. As soon as Jesus declares, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Men from the ruler's house, men from Jairus's house, they come and say, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. You see, it's one thing clearly to, to be a powerful miracle worker and to be able to heal somebody of a bleeding disease after 12 years, but it's a holy and categorically different thing to raise somebody back from the dead to bring someone back to life. And so Jairus' guys, they say it's not worth it. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. But here's what Jairus does, or Jesus does. Jesus looks at him and says, don't fear. Just believe. Don't stop believing in me. Be persistent in your faith. Do not fear. Only believe. Kids, I'm going to ask you another question. Kids, tell me about a time you were recently afraid Tell me about a time you recently got afraid. Or maybe a not-so-recent time. This is a much harder question than the medicine one. 
man, you guys are not into that question. All right, Piper. So when we lived in Orlando, when COVID first hit, our minivan got stolen out of our driveway. And um, yeah, that was it was it felt violating to have somebody steal something from our driveway. And it really put a damper on us going any places. Um, Yeah. What about you, Caleb? Was it the Ender Dragon? I've already exhausted all my Minecraft knowledge. I don't know what that is. But yeah, so a lot of times when we play video games, like there was a couple of video games that I had to stop playing when I was a kid because they were too scary for me. You were five? Okay. Yeah, Lu- Lucia, what about you? Yeah, when you're outside and it thunders and lightning and it's dark, that's for real scary. Yes, Rhea. Oh my gosh, that is scary. You see, because here's the other thing, kids. Not only is sin and suffering and sickness universal to the human condition, but so is fear. And it's not just you guys. Here's the thing, kids. It's not just you guys that get afraid. I promise you, moms and dads, we get afraid too as adults. And so Jairus, here with Jesus... This man, this dad, is afraid because his daughter is dying. And Jesus looks at him as the Messiah and says, Do not fear. Only believe. Jesus challenges the faith of Jairus. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say to Jairus, Dig deep in yourself, man. Believe in yourself and grind through this. We'll get through this. No. No, this is not a bootstrap kind of faith thing that Jesus is asking Jairus to get on board with. He is asking Jairus, believe in me. I can hear Jesus. He doesn't say it here, but I'm going to pretend. Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. He points to himself, not Jairus. And so they go on. He takes Peter and James and John and they approach the house and they see this crowd of mourners and Jesus says what, what are you doing what's this commotion that you're making she's not dead she's sleeping so Jesus as the Messiah is even challenging the professional paid mourners that are here lamenting this girl and when he does that they laugh at him they laugh at him what do you mean she's sleeping she's dead Jesus says no no let's go inside get out of here we're going to see a miracle like you're never ever going to see again And so he goes in, he takes his inner circle, he takes mom and he takes dad, he goes into where the girl is and he takes her by the hand. Takes her by the hand, the way that he's taken other sick and paralyzed people and he says, little girl, get up. She wakes up just as if she had been taking a nap. She gets up and she starts walking and Jesus, in his immense wisdom and kindness, says, get that girl a snack. You see, Jesus as the Messiah, invites us, invites us into a faith that is going to persist, that is going to be resilient, that is not going to be easily swayed by human circumstances or cultural pressures. Jesus is inviting us into a faith that is resilient, not because you're good at having faith, not because you're good at believing things, 
but because he is worth believing in. And he is the one that has shown over and over and over again that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the one in whom we can find full and abundant life, the one who forgives sins, the ones who brings us to life everlasting. That's the one you want to cling to, the rock of ages that we sang about, cleft for you and me so that we might hide ourselves in him when life gets hard, when we're afraid, when we're confronted with sickness and death and fear. And so Jesus invites us to a faith that we don't just receive. It's not just a one-time thing, a one-time belief, and you're good. The other half of that in Westminster Shorter Catechism 86 is resting, Receiving and resting in Christ. And what that means, that paints the picture of an ongoing process, an ongoing reality of every day waking up, dying to self, and resting in the promises of Christ. Every day, minute by minute, hour by hour, when you're afflicted and assailed with all the realities of life, you receive and you rest in the one who calls you his own. You over and over and over again, you go in repentance. You sin the same way over and over again. You repent the same way over and over again. And you say, Jesus, I believe in your promises, that you have cleansed me with your blood, that you have covered my shame, that you are my Messiah. You are my Redeemer. And so over and over and persistently, We believe in the one who calls us his own. But at the same time, at the same time, we do need challenged. We do need our faith to be challenged. We do need encouraged. Because again, as we sang, our faith is often weak. And so when we come to church, when we are around God's people, when we read God's word, there should be a level of rebuke. There should be a sting of, man, I'm I'm trusted in myself, not Jesus. We need other people in our lives. We need brothers and sisters in Christ. We need our church family. We need the Word of God to challenge us. Not to be better, but to receive and rest more fully. We need God's Word. We need God's people to challenge us. Not to to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but to repent and believe over and over again, even when it's difficult. And so if you're not a believer, and you've been looking around, and it's been a long time. The promises of Scripture are there. Ask and you will find, or seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given to you. Don't stop looking for truth because Jesus has revealed himself and will show himself to you. And if you're a believer and you're struggling with physical, mental, spiritual anguish, receive and rest over and over and over again because sin is tenacious disease is persistent, and one day you and I will all die. And so because that's the road that we're all on, we need to receive and rest in the promises of Christ. But there is a problem here, and, and, it's, and it's a realistic question to come to this text with. What, what if I'm not good at being humble? What if in my weakness and my frailty, I'm not persistent, I'll roll over at the first sign of trouble? What if my faith is just garbage? What if I'm not good at reading the Bible and I'm spotty at church attendance and I, 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 I don't have devotional time and I, and I just, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a weak, failing Christian? 
That's a good question because that's the same boat that in many ways all of us are in. And I'll, and I'll say this as a response to that. There are two problems with snake oil. Well, two major. There's more than two, but there's two major problems. One is that Charles Stanley was wrong uh, in using rattlesnakes because the snakes that snake oil came from only came from China. And so eventually the supply of real snake oil production was going to run out. Eventually, the supply was going to run out, and he would be exposed as a fraud. So the supply runs out, and here's the other problem. Like many medicines, like Tamiflu or purple chalky Tylenol or elderberry syrup, they deal with symptoms. They alleviate symptoms. They do not always get to the root of a problem and deal with the underlying issue that is actually producing the symptoms. And so the problem that we run into as believers, or as non-believers, or as believers, is we look to things that are insufficient. We look to temporary things that deal with eternal problems. And we're not sufficient. And we run out, and we don't deal with the real issue. So if you only deal with symptoms, if you only deal with the fruit of your sin and not the root of your sin, you are never going to be changed. You are never going to be transformed. And if you only deal with temporary fixes to eternal problems, you're always going to be left wanting more and more, and you're never going to find the healing that you so desperately desire. But here's the thing, is that this sermon, this text, is not geared towards, look at Jairus and look at this woman. Be like them and be better Christians. This text is geared towards looking at Jesus And say, look at the humility and the persistence of your Messiah who comes for you. Because if you think about this, think about it like this. The eternal, infinite, unchanging God of glory is incarnate in Christ. And in his humility, he suffers all of the things of life that you and I suffer. He lives under the law of God perfectly. In humility, he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I have not come to save myself. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. And he sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And he marches to the cross in humility and in grit for you. Not just to be an example for you to follow, but he does it for you. And on the cross, his blood poured out is the cost of, the thing that purchases your redemption and your healing and your forgiveness and that covers your shame. He does that for you. And in his resurrection, he defeats that last enemy that all sin and disease leads to. He defeats death so that when you look to the Messiah who came for you in faith, you will be resurrected from the dead. Because here's the promise of the Christian life. The promise of the Christian life is not merely that you are physically healed. It's not merely that you will experience a cure for the things that physically ail you right now in this moment. The promise of the Christian life is in a future consummation when Christ comes back, makes all things new, and that physical body that is full of brokenness and ailments is put off And you get an immortal resurrection body. And you and I will gather around the throne and we will worship our God forever. And there in the middle of the city of the new Jerusalem will be the tree of life. 
and the leaves will be for what the healing of the nations. So when we talk about healing, it's never just about you physically being made better. It's about you being spiritually restored so that the physical and spiritual restoration that you have right now in this life is a foretaste of the fullness that is promised when Christ comes back and makes all things new. So brothers and sisters, would you humbly and persistently look to the one who saves us in faith so that we may be well now and forever in eternity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you tell us in your word that those who approach you with unclean hands will be destroyed. But Lord, not only does this woman approach you and touch you, she's not destroyed, but she's made well. Not only do you, Jesus, touch Jairus' daughter and she's raised to life, you do not destroy that which is unclean anymore. You bring to life that which is broken because of the great sacrifice that you put forth on the cross that we might have a propitiation for our sins, that all of God's wrath against our sin and our rebellion and our uncleanliness is covered by your blood and we might be empowered by your spirit because you were resurrected in life. And so you call us to a way of faithful, humble, persistent life following the one who restores us. Lord Jesus, pray. we pray that you would humble us that we would look to life and find life in you. Lord, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next until you come back and make all things new, Jesus. We love you. We pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.